Hello, my name is Michelle O'Brien, and I will be having a conversation with Kiara St. James for the New York City Trans Oral History Project in collaboration with the New York Public Library's Community Oral History Project. This is an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans-identifying people. It is March 6, 2017, and this has been recorded at the Housing Works office in downtown Brooklyn. Hello. Hey, how you doing? Excellent. <laughs> good, good. Tell me about your growing up. Where are you from and what was your childhood like? Hmm, where do we get? So I, was, uh, I grew up in Beaumont, Texas. Um, my childhood was a very complicated childhood simply because there was a lot of gender policing at a very young age. And I also grew up in a Kojic background. And Kojic, for folks who don't know me, is an acronym for Church of God in Christ. So I grew up in a very fundamentally Christian, um, condemning background and it was very condemning um you know to where I did not even as a child I felt like I something was wrong with me so Church of God in Christ is that an evangelical evangelical church? yes absolutely and they are pr primarily southern but there's quite a few up north but yeah and what was your family like um a family was not really affirming of me you know, so it's by trial and error. You know, I am a, a product of, as I said before, um, a lot of gender policing, a lot of um, don't cross your legs, boys don't cross their legs. You know, um, the way I spoke, the, the games I play, I always made, you know, I always wanted to play with the girls and boys don't play with girls. I used to fight with my, um, my female, like, um, neighborhood kids as well as um, my sisters and female cousins about who would play Wonder Woman and I always wanted to be Wonder Woman as a child <laughs> so I would be the one then like I remember one time I was they let me be Wonder Woman and my father saw me and he was so like angry to where he like smacked me in front of all the neighborhood kids yeah and so um I had a very traumatic childhood, and it's funny, I speak a lot about, um, we speak a lot about trauma, mm -hmm. and how a lot of times, you know, if you grow up in communities where there is abuse, and like a lot of African American families, you know, we, can, we talk about, and Richard Pryor kind of made a joke of it, about being made to go get a switch, and to get a beating with that switch. We all, and it's like, we can laugh about it now, right, but at the same time, because it was so common in our neighborhoods, we saw it as being normal. And it wasn't until many, many years later that I realized like that's, that was trauma, that was, that was abuse. But at the time, if you grow up in neighborhoods where everybody's family does that to them, you think, oh, this is just normal. This is what they do. This is what our community, this is part of our culture. You know? And so, um, yeah, so I grew up seeing a lot of, normalizing a lot of, behaviors that were not necessarily, um, be, would not be condoned today. Yeah. What kind of work did your parents do? So my, my um, father did a lot of construction work um, and a lot of um, landscaping work, things of that nature. My mother was a, is a registered nurse. Mm -hmm. So I grew up in like a very stable middle income community, you know, we had a house, we had a front and backyard, we had a swing set, you know, we had like one of those blow up swimming pools. So, you know, it was, you know, 
from the outside, it looked like the 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 um, vision that a lot of folks have for their their uh, families. Are there other particular things around your childhood that you would like to share? I'm sorry, say it again. Are there other things around your childhood that you would like to share? Mm, no, I'm good. <laughs> okay. So how did you get out of Beaumont? Um, well, I got out of Beaumont due to, as I said, there, you know, beatings and switches and all that was abnormal. But what happened also is um, my family being Kojic, my family being very anti-LGBT saw behaviors in me that was they did not want. So I always tell people, like, I've always had an affinity to Janet Jackson's character in Good Times, Penny, because, like, I, I raise up my sleeve, because right here is an iron burn, you know, that my mother inflicted upon me. Also, grease burn here. I have some other scars all over my body. And, and the purpose of those was to kind of, like, was to get those demon spirits out of me, as they said. And I also remember, recall going to church and having everybody in the church pray over me and, and pray to get this, the, 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 what they call homosexual spirit out of me. What did you think about that at the time? Did you agree with them or did you have some space from that in your own heart? Uh, well, I started to internalize and a lot of self-hatred, a lot of I, I didn't want to be. You know, um, and back then, we didn't have a term called trans. Trans is really new, you know. So when I was growing up, we, there was no um, trans identity. But all I knew from my family and the church community and even in the school system was anything that was LGBT was wrong, and you did not want to be that. When, uh, how did you leave there? So I left there, as I was saying, um, so... I had a teacher who saw that I was come to school every other day, every other week with some type of bruise on my body. So they put me in foster care. So through foster care, I was able to um, be removed from my biological family and get to um, leave the country. I actually grew up in Heidelberg, Germany. You know, so from the ages of um, 11 till I graduated from high school. I went to school in Heidelberg, Germany. Were they an uh, army family? or They were not an Germany? army family, but they were civilians. They worked for Dodds, Department of Defense. Okay. And um, so I was one of several foster kids that they took in. Tell me about your foster family. Um, my foster family were, are very, um, were very different than my um, biological family in that they allowed me to um, kind of find my way. You know, they, one thing I find funny, also my foster um, parents um, are of Jewish background. Mm -hmm. And so they kind of was like, didn't want me to be disconnected from my African-American experience. So one way they got, felt I could stay connected was making sure I went to church on Sundays. <laughs> and so, and, and when I was younger, it, it was fun because I loved listening to gospel music. So I, that's, that was my favorite part of church, just listening to the gospel choir. And I always knew when it was going to perform. But other than that, I tended to not um, like being in church. Um, and a lot of churches, um, fortunately, it has changed, but it hasn't changed as much. Um, there was a lot of focus on, on people's sexuality, you know, and... Um, 
So I always find churches, especially a lot of African-American churches, problematic because there, there's a lot of focus on on homosexual spirit. Yeah. You know, and, um, but other than that, um, other than the, listen to the gospel choir, I um, did not enjoy church other than just, you know, um, for those 10 minutes of, of, of singing. Mm-hmm. Um, my foster parents um, also had, it's very, my family, foster um, family is very multicultural, so I had a lot of foster brothers and sisters who were from different ethnic, ethnic backgrounds. And um, I was, there's a, there was another child who was of African-American background, but they were much older than me at the time, and there was no connection. Yeah. How old were you when you moved to Germany? I was 11 years old. And how much time did you spend there? I spent um, from 11 to till I was 17, 17 years old. Did you uh, have any positive experiences around trying to relate to your gender or sexuality when you were there? Not really. That came much later. Yeah. Um, I had experiences like being in school, and I just remember having a, a um, health ed teacher who um, was always harping on romance. And, and one thing I remember that stu- stood out was that she made sure to let us know romance can only be between a man and a woman. And that you could not, there could never be, there's no, there was no such thing as romance between a man and a man or, or a woman and a woman. It has to be male, female only. And I remember like even then I'm like, and I don't know why I was bold, because nobody else really asked the question. I'm like, well, why not? And she was just really, because it just can't be. It's, it's, it's impossible. You know, and I just kind of let it go, and, and, and that kind of stuck with me, too. Like, you know, okay, so romance can only be between a male and a female. It sounds like you were very isolated. Yeah, it was a lot of isolation. And then also because I grew up in Germany, and I grew up in a... Um, predominantly white environment, there were uh, some stereotypes in play, you know, of uh, what it was to be black and what folks perceived to be male, and I didn't fit those stereotypes, so it was very awkward for me as well. And where did you go next? Um, so when I graduated from high school, and I, I had an early graduation because I was just wanting to get away from, because you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, as they say. Now I'm appreciative of like, wow, I had that experience. If I knew then what I know now, I would have stayed over there and made it work. You know, but um, as a 17 year old, I, there, and there was no internet back then. So as a 17 year old, I always felt like I was missing out on so much in the States. So I basically went back to and tried to make a reconnection with my family. It did not go so well. You know, they, they welcomed me, but at the same time, I didn't feel connection. Um, so what I did after I graduated from high school is I joined up to, well, the first thing I did was I went to this business school bad decision. Somebody told me you should have just go you should have went straight to college. It would have saved you student student loans and all that good stuff. You know, I would have done that, but I didn't really have anyone in my life to direct me. Um so um I completed I got a a, a license as a security guard, armed security guard. I was gotta stress that. 
armed security guards, that hierarchy, right, right. you know. So um, from there, I realized like I didn't really want to be a security guard. So I found out about the job training program um, at um, Gary Job Corps, located in San Marcos, Texas. So I spent a good 16 months learning how to be a um, a nurse assistant, you know, and it was also where I first started seeing gender non-conforming folks of color and and um, people really very foreign to me as far as like what I was used to. Yeah. Right, give me a picture of what you were like. How did you spend your free time in these years? My free time was really a lot of fantasizing about guys <laughs> that I know I can never be, I would never be in relationships with. Um, and I spent a lot of time in a library reading. You know, I've I've always been a lover of history. So my even to this day, I get off on like going like to the bookstore, like Strand's yeah. bookstore in, in um near Union Square. Um, if I see a bunch of books on a corner, because you know, every now and then people discard books, as like, oh, books, you know? So yeah. books w it was my great escape, you know? Um, it made me um, visualize other possibilities and just like escapism. So I escaped through books, um, and that is how I spent a lot of my um, first couple years back in the States, just reading. Do you remember any of the books that you enjoyed? So I, I read a lot. I love history books. So mainly a lot of history books, a lot of books on like the um, Byzantine Empire and, and, and um, Abyssinian, the Abyssinian Empire, which, you know, was, is where I discovered um, like Christianity was the genesis of it was in Ethiopia, or what we call Ethiopia. Um, I did. I had a love of geography, so back then I knew by a shape of a country on a map what country it was, you know. And um, yeah, so I spent a lot of time like reading geography, studying geography, um, a lot of National Geographics, a lot of just books that a lot of folks today would find boring, but I found very interesting. And I also did a lot of. Re researching the Bible and being able to, because um, I discovered things that they didn't teach us in school or in um, Sunday school. Like there was like the um, Council of Nicaea that I learned about. I learned about um, what is that? the Council of Nicaea is where um, the early Christian um, bishops they all gathered in Nicaea, which was located in North Africa. And they decided what was going to be in the book, in the Bible, and what they was going to keep out of the Bible. Um, I also discovered um, the, the hidden life of Jesus, and like he was married, allegedly married to Mary Magdalene. Um, I learned about a lot of the miracles that um, he performed that they didn't put in the Bible. Like, for instance, he had a childhood friend, and they was playing on a roof one day and his childhood friend fell off the roof and um, died. And so everybody was like, they, they, when they witnessed it, they, they ran to the child. And when Jesus came down, he touched the child and the child came back to life. Mm -hmm. You know, and I'm like, mm, I didn't read about that in the Bible. You know, and, and just things like he saw a, uh, a clay, 
like a, a statue of a pigeon or of a bird. He touched it, and the bird came to life, and things of that nature. So, like things like yeah, that um, um, a lot of folks may not know that they kept out. What was the meaning for you in studying these stories that got left out of the Bible? Like, why why did they resonate with you, or why were you interested in them? Because um, I, as I said earlier, like I grew up in a Church of God in Christ yeah. background, so there was interest, and there was still like a connection to um, my um, my family through the church, um, and also in the South, the, the you know it that's a big you know being attached to a church, a church community, was very big, and I um, had interest in that, you know, and there was part of me that thought, like, I could be delivered from um, the feelings I was feeling, mm -hmm. so part of that was kind of trying to find a way of how I could could um, redeem myself. Yeah. So looking for a way of relating to the religion, but these left-out stories yeah. might be... Uh... Like there might be more to it yeah. than what you no, were absolutely, told. Yeah. absolutely. You know, and um, then I came across um, more LGBT affirming um, scriptures that made me look at things differently. And and like even to this day, I'm not a religious person. I'm very spiritual, and there is a difference between being spiritual and religious. You know, I always tell folks like religion, um, you have to remove remove any type of critical analysis and just believe without questioning why you believe. Um, as a spiritual person, I can question why I believe or why people believe what they believe. Where did you come across LGBT affirming scripture? Um, there was surprisingly enough there were there were um, libraries that had queer like queer. Um, specific books yeah. and um, from time to time they would have stuff about queer and about you know, like queer like people who are gay in the Bible yeah. like for instance I was fixated with the alleged romance between David and Jonathan in the um, Old Testament you know or like how John like what did John mean when he say that he was the beloved of Jesus and the alleged you know connotations behind all of that. So there's part of me that was fixated on like finding like queerness in the Bible as yeah. well, and it really um, helped to affirm me. And have you met queer people this time? I started to meet queer people, but at the same time, um, they were very scary to me. And a lot of times they were, and I get it now, but like they were very aggressive and very like defensive, and you know, like I remember seeing some drag queens and they were this is when I moved to Atlanta after I graduated from Job Corps. And I remember being on the MARTA, the, the train in um, Atlanta. And I saw these these drag queens and I just started like you know, I was young and I started like, those are those are guys. You know, because I didn't really understand and I didn't have that connection yet yeah. to um to um the LG, you know, to the trans and gender nonconforming community. And so there was still a lot of immaturity in me at that time. What brought you to Atlanta? I went to Atlanta to get away from folks who knew me <laughs> in Beaumont, Texas. And Atlanta was always a place I heard people talk about, of like the Mecca for African Americans. And I wanted to go and explore it. Um, I was also with my partner at the time. And um, so that's where we... we um, 
move to. <laughs> Can you tell me about your partner? Um, my partner was also from the South. He's from Louisiana. He was from Louisiana. Um, his name was Kevin. And um, so we had a nice relationship, like, as far, at least back then I thought we did. Like, hindsight now was there was a lot of um, problems, you know, but um, at the same time, because um, I grew up not knowing a lot of LGBT folks, I always said when I met someone who was in the, in the life, that was going to be my partner, and, and that's all I needed was, was that would be him. And um, How did you two meet? We actually met at Job Corps. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we met at Job Corps. So you were students together? Yeah. At school? Yeah. And what was it Atlanta like? What was your life like there? Atlanta was very different than Beaumont, Texas, or even the bigger cities in like Houston, Texas, and Dallas that mm -hmm. I spent time in simply because I saw the visibility of like the affluent African American mm -hmm. class. I saw, saw a lot of. Um, LGB folks in positions of um, authority hmm. and being unapologetic, you know, um, and so that made me a lot more feeling like I was part of a of a community, you know. And the biggest club at that time for the African American SGL community um, was a club called Loretta's, and so being, going there, I just saw all these like. Men, women, and trans and drag queens of color, and I'm like, wow, this is just blew my mind. <laughs> Do you remember a, a good night at Loretta's? Or um, there's quite a few good nights. I always loved the 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 um, drag shows. Monday Night Madness. Tuesday was Talent Night. I forgot what Wednesday was, but they always had something each day of the week for um, folks who loved like drag shows and things of that nature. Then they had a great MC. He was African-American. He's since passed away, named um, Emmanuel. And Emmanuel was African-American, but he did a lot of Betty Davis <laughs> type of, of uh, performances. And what years were you in Atlanta? <sighs> I was in Atlanta, like, 90... Like 91 through like 95. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. And how did did you live with Kevin most of that time or part of it? Yeah, we lived together. It was very easy for for us to find jobs. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the cost of living is cheap. You know, we had a car. Um, so yeah, it was it was. What kind of jobs did you two do? So just I had a job as a nurse because I graduated. I went. Right. To, I was right. a nurse. And then I also had another job at which I loved even more. So I quit being a nurse just to be a a, a server at the Olive Garden because I discovered like I could leave each night with at least a hundred dollars in tips. Yeah. Plus I was salaried, and because and we broke because Kevin worked there at the same time as well, and um, even though we were servers, you know, because there's people they were um, they wanted the more. I don't know how to explain it, like the, the, the positions of, of hostess or host, because, you know, that's, it's more like you could dress a certain way and, and, and um, you greet people, you take them to the table. 
you know, you, you sit them down, but they didn't realize those people who um, were hired in those positions that their hourly wages was only like two fifty an hour, <laughs> as opposed oh, wow. to a server who got paid um, like five fifty an hour plus, you know, tips. So a lot of people who went in as hostess and, and as hosts, they wanted to change to be a server because they realized they made more money as a server. So just because a position looks cute doesn't mean you get paid more money in that position. Right. Right. So, <laughs> Words wisdom. Yes. And did you uh, feel a part of a community through Loretta's or through other LGBT I people? I, I, I felt yeah. connection, you know, but at the same time... Um, we were still in the South, and my partner, more so than me, dealt with a lot of um, issues with his family. So just to make that distance between our families and us, um, he made the decision that we was coming to New York. And I never really wanted to come to New York, you know, but at the same time, I wanted to be with him. So I made, you know, so I went along with him to come his to New York. His family was in Atlanta? No, his family was in Louisiana. Okay. Yeah, so we didn't really have any family in Atlanta. But he wanted to get farther Yeah, away. because he knew there was people. Because one thing about the South is, like, people do travel. Right. So people who know you from your hometown in Texas, they travel to Atlanta and yeah. back and forth. And so from time to time, there would be cousins or people who um, he knew who would see him, and, and that kind of triggered him. Yeah. When did you move to New York? What was that like? When I moved to New York, that was 95, late 95. Mm -hmm. It was exciting, it was scary, and um, just, I didn't really know what to expect. <laughs> Where did you two live? So we stayed, um, at that time there was a hotel called the Carter Hotel. I think it's still there, but it's much different than when we first um, stayed there because, and I believe it was like $40 a night or something mm -hmm. like that. Now, you couldn't, yeah, that, we wouldn't be able to, to stay there. And it was a hotel, I didn't know this until like six months later, later that it was a hotel that was a known prostitute spot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so a lot of the, um, the girls, as well as the male Johns, took their dates there and all that. But they also had floors where you could stay. Um, they had weekly rates, so you could stay there for like weeks at a time. And I actually had a nice relationship with, um, what you call it, the um, concierge at the downstairs and all that. He wasn't really a concierge because it, it was the person in the front desk. Yeah. And but he was very helpful, and he let us stay there far longer than he <laughs> we could have stayed if if we did not get on if we were not on good terms with him. Yeah. Did you two find an apartment? That took a minute to find an apartment. Yeah. yeah. So you're in hotels for a while. Yeah, hotels, and sometimes we um, stayed with with folks, you know. But primarily in hotels, you know we tended to not like being in other people's spaces and one thing about unfortunately it hasn't really changed that much but sometimes when you're in relationships there's people who try to do things to, to separate you <laughs> from those relationships and all that 
So people that you would stay with would yeah, yeah. mess with you too. Yeah. yeah. Try to break us up, things of that nature. That's all. Uh, how were you paying for the hotels? So we um, primarily doing like odd jobs. Um, he was primarily good at get, getting like jobs and all that. And so I was kind of like dependent on him more so, you know, but I did have jobs such as um, where you work for a, a day or two, like selling newspapers and things of that nature. So I sold a lot of um, New York Post, Daily News by um, World Trade Center. So at the end of the day, I could keep my tips, different things like that. So that's how I made a, a living, you know. <laughs> when did you first start connecting to being trans or being a woman in a, in a conscious way, in a way that you could really like start talking about? I mean, I've, as I said earlier, I've always connected to being, to, to the um, female energy. Yeah. Um, but like for the longest time, because I was trying to prove to my father, to male relatives that I could be masculine. And I did a lot of things to like contain that, yeah. that part of me. And I think coming to New York really helped me to get back in touch with who um, I always felt myself to be. You know, and I met a lot of folks, a lot of trans women, or what we call back then femme queens. Mm -hmm. And I always tell people, even to this day, I love the term femme queen. And femme queens were folks we would call trans today. Mm -hmm. But the femme queens were the icons, and they were the goddesses of New York City back then. And when I first came to New York City, it was at the height of the HIV AIDS epidemic. So the city had like a gray tone to it where um, you could tell there was a disease that was taking people out. And I remember still like um, seeing um, femme queens um, primarily just looking like goddesses, you know, like like done to the, to the t you know, just done up and like just looking like movie stars and glamour queens and they that really helped m inspire me you know yeah. and i remember just following girls around like you know and like one of the um is a famous girl she's since passed away but i remember being so fixated with her and like just you know wanting to know like how is that possible how because i didn't know anything about hormones and things of that nature um, and i remember just being mesmerized by her and it happened to be on a night when she was drunk and she threw a bottle at me. <laughs> and it hit, it hit my, yeah, so I got nicked on my ankle by her and her calling me a, 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 a nasty faggot. <laughs> and so um, years later, I'm like, I don't know if you remember this, but um, you used to hang out in front of Sally's. I used to hang out in front of Sally's and I used to see you and be so mesmerized by you. And you was drunk. And so I'm not gonna hold it against you, but you threw a bottle and you called me a nasty faggot. And I remember like we had a good laugh behind mm -hmm. it and stuff, you know, cause um, she turned out to be a real good friend. Her, na her name is Portia, she's since passed away, mm -hmm. you know, and but she was like, if you look her up, Portia LaBeja, gorgeous African-American trans woman. And, and she was like everything. <laughs> I, I, so many questions here. So but first, um, uh, Femme Queen. Tell me about Femme Queen. Yeah. How uh, the the history of the of the identity and how yeah. that 
the history of femme queen goes back a long ways. And I, I know until some girls in the community today, they get upset and they find that they don't like the term femme queen. But as I said, that's all I ever, like when people say, did you ever aspire to be female? I'm like, no, I aspired to be a femme queen. You know, uh, that was everything to be a femme queen. A femme queen was higher up than a drag queen because a drag queen was really just a man who did got who got dressed up in drag, but at the end of the day, they went home or they lived their everyday life as a boy. And to me, that was boring. You know, but a femme queen, a femme queen had um, had a style to them. They 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 um, exuded like grace and and they. Um, commanded attention you know I remember like just being like going either like it can be in a restaurant it could be in the welfare center when femme queens came through everybody stopped what they were doing just to be in awe of them you know and I'm like it just made me so excited you know and I remember I had I have a, um, a girlfriend at the time who hated femme queens she's like why are you so fixated with them why you like them so much you know I'm like it's just so beautiful, you know. And so it took a long time for her to, my, my girlfriend at the time, to understand. And the ironic thing is, is that my um, girlfriend back then is also a trans experience today. <laughs> so it's kind of funny how um, our, there's irony in that, you know, uh, like people who felt felt disgust at trans or femme queens, and then you see them today, and they're the very thing that they say that they find disgusting, <laughs> you know. Tell me about some particular femme queens from that era that inspired you. Wow. So there was, um, back it's then, just, and I, I'm gonna say. our history. It's our know? history, no, yeah. absolutely, and I'm gonna say this, like hormones back then were real hormones, you know, we called it the purple candy. You pop the purple candy, and within a week, you knew somebody was transitioning because that's how potent the estrogen was back then. And so, like, there was the beautiful Amanda Milan. You know, she um, was a girl who hung out on um, 42nd Street, and we all did it at that time. You know, because one thing we did as a as a hobby was we would. If you go to Times Square now in that area, things are very different. It's very disnified and and you know classy, somewhat. And uh, I'm doing quotations, um, but there was a. I'm trying to think the name of it. It wasn't Sally's. It was like a a, a showgirl um, club, and it's right across the street from um, Port Authority. But in that area, there were always these big billboards, and they always featured. Um, another amazing femme queen of that time, Danielle Revlon. She was always featured on their billboard in this beautiful red fishnet. And so every day I just got my life just looking at her on the billboard. And I just remember one day when I finally got to meet her, I was like scared of her because she had this energy like, if you look at her, like she was gonna, <laughs> you know, that like you didn't wanna look at her because you didn't want her to um, come for you, as they say. And um, it wasn't until many, like a year or two passed to where she really accepted me as part of the community. And it was kind of funny because I remember I was hanging out with Amanda Milan, Crystal, I forget Crystal's last name. What's the group of us? Amanda, Crystal, um, quite a few girls. Brandy, 
because it was a place where we all converged um, outside. It wasn't inside, it was outside. And we just found any car that was parked in front of the club, we reclaimed it and we would lean on it, we would sit on it. We would like, that was where we did our business. So we saw cute guys, hey, you know, we sit on somebody else's car, we're like calling them to come over. And, you know, so it was a time that was really scary but exciting at the same time. Um, and I remember like saying, having a conversation about this one guy and how he saw the girls. And I remember Danielle Revon gave me this funny look. And then she asked me if I was a femme queen. And I'm like, what, what else would I be? <laughs> and then she, so anybody know Danielle Revon know that she could be very dramatic. And so she did very like color purple, like Oprah. She's like, all this time, I never knew. <laughs> and then she had her hand like this, you know, like, like like just going up and down. Like, I thought you were one of those fag hacks. She thought I was a fag hack. And so I'm like, really? You know, and, I, and which really was a compliment in a way. But at the same time, I'm like, how did you not know that I'm what? Can you tell by my voice? Hello. You know, but yeah. since then, I know a lot of, you know, cis women have graspy sexy voices like mine <laughs> and um but yeah but I remember like just kind of like feeling honored mm -hmm. and she's like and you can tell people Danielle Revlon never knew you know and I'm like wow wow and then also during that time that was a time of Octavia Saint Laurent and Octavia was like one of the icons in the community I got to know she had days when she's a she was a sweetheart and she had days when not so much, you know? And um, I remember like hanging out with her. I remember like just being in awe, you know? I remember how the guys, the, the guys from the um, different sex shops, when they would see her, they would rush out to ask for her autograph. And this is in the mid 90s and all that. And there was no glory, you know? So they really revered, you know, the fact that um, she, you know, the femme queens, and I think also because they were South Asian, and in South Asian culture, there is a a place for third gender. So they were like in awe of the fact of like femme queens and things of that nature. So I always like remember that as well, like just how every time the guys, the South Asian guys, saw her, they would like rush out to get her her autograph and things, and like give her a hug. You know, so I was like always fixated with that. Tell me about some of the bars or clubs or other spaces where you all. So when I, during the time that I came to New York, all the popular like um, gay bars, LGBT bars were closing up. Um, the only one that was still pretty much relevant was Two Potatoes. So Two Potatoes was where we converged in the, in the village. Um, you, they had drag shows. Um, people hung out in front in the front of the bar. Anybody that, that is familiar with New York City and, and Two Potatoes knows like it's this really small like hole in the wall. You know, but at the same time, like looking back, I can see it as that. But like when I first came to New, to New York, I saw it as like a big, like spades, you know, and, and like it was always packed and there was always like new faces like every other day, you know, that you got to meet in the bar. And um but the main place that I hung out was um on the pier. 
you know, in the summertime primarily. The pier looks nothing like it does now. You know, it's very run down. All the activities, everything that you wanted, you could find out on the pier. That was a time when um, there was no internet. So guys who loved the girls, they did not have the convenience of like being on the internet and putting it, you know, they had to come and find us. They had to come to where we were at. And because a lot of us were on the pier, we got, you know, there was a lot of um, trans amorous men, <laughs> you know, who flocked down to the pier. You know, so I remember that um, time as well. Uh, just every day, every other day, there was always new people. And, and, and I always tell people, and, and my contemporaries who remember that time can, can also vouch that you always had fun. You, there was always a new face, like, you know, because there was not the convenience of having uh, the internet. So when people was looking for, for the girls, they had to physically come where the girls were at. You know, as opposed to today where they have options of where they can stay at home and go on Craigslist, um, Backpage, when it was still up, you know, and, and really choose that way today. But back then, it was like, it was better because you, you know, somebody can post a picture online and with a six pack, and when you see them, they're like, oh, you do not look like the picture. <laughs> You know, and the, oh yeah, that's an old picture. And you're like, yeah, I'm like 20 years old. <laughs> you know, but um, what I like that about back then is you got to have authentic conversations and relationships with people as opposed to them sending you a photoshopped picture of, of, of them. And were some of these relationships uh, financial and some not financial? I like yeah. how did that? A lot of those relationships form like, um, when I finally, um, when I came on my own, yeah. and um, a lot of those relationships were financial, mm -hmm. you know, and, and unfortunately within the trans community, um, there was a lot, it was, there was an initiation that um, we went through, and a lot of the older girls put us through of like, if you're really real, let's see if you can pull this thing. Let's see if you can pull this guy. And so that's how a lot of us got initiated into um, sex work, you know, and also that was a time when we didn't have any protection. So there was no local laws to protect us. So the only thing we, we could do as far as economically making a living for ourselves was, you know, um, sex work. Were know. there things that women did, that femme queens did to stay safe or take care of each other or to like watch out for each other? Um, yeah, we did things such as like took down the driver's license, I mean, the license plates of the dates and let them know that we're taking down their license plates. Girl, look, wait a minute, let me see what he looked like. Okay, okay, y'all can go, go. You know, so it was, we let the guys know that we're watching them, so you better bring her back. She better be back here um, in an hour, if not, you know. And so there were um, communities like that. And I'm not gonna romanticize, because I feel that a lot of times Older trans women tend to romanticize and say, back in the day, we looked off on one another. And yes, that did happen, but there was still the infighting. You know, I remember also when I started, um, after I transitioned, having girls who saw me as competition, who would, you know, would get me jumped, 
you know, um, tried to disfigure me. So um, same things that go, that happened back then, it still happens today. And I find it problematic when um, older girls tell younger girls like, oh, we were much more um, cohesive community that looked out for one another because, you know, there was a lot of trauma, a lot of pain. And when you're traumatized and, and you grew up in pain, you don't necessarily um, have the wherewithal to um, think about being compassionate and looking out for your girlfriends. Um, if you were fortunate, fortunate enough to have girls who had, um, had kind hearts, then you were truly um, blessed to have that connection. And was your community almost all black, or was there a mix of like there was Latino? A, or there was a mixture of black, Latino, um, white. Um, race always played a part, you know, because um, even a lot of my black girlfriends who were light-skinned played into, oh, like if people, cause like down south I grew up, I come from a multiracial family, right? Mm -hmm. So down south, I grew up with light-skinned blacks, dark-skinned blacks, um, pecan brown, pecan brown. You know, um, you know. so like coming to New York, I saw like there was a lot of colorism, you know, within a black community, within a Latin community. So what I saw was like a lot of light-skinned African-American mm -hmm. um, femme queens would play up on either being mixed race or pass them off as being Latina, you know, and um, so there was a lot of like internalized racial self-hatred, you know, where black folks didn't want to say, or even just telling me, you should play up the fact that you have this background because you'll make more money. And so even I played into that, like, you know, because a lot of times dates would ask me, you look unique, what is your background? And then I, they, because people told me to play up part of my ethnicity that is not African-American, I would do that, you know, and it wasn't until I started really, like, critical, critical analysis, you hear me say, I'm, I'm, you hear me say that a lot, so crit, critical analysis came later on of, like, why do I have to say that I'm multiracial just to be seen as more attractive, you know, and so, like, even to this day, when people ask me my background, I was telling them I'm, I'm black, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes, you know, when they annoy me enough, I'll say I'm, I'm black mixed with a little bit of piccaninny and coon. <laughs> and people really get mad. I'm like, no, because you're trying to say, oh, that's why you look the way you do. And I'm like, if I tell you I'm black, it's like if I tell you I'm trans, I identify as female, respect that. And it's the same thing with um, race, you know, because it goes hand in hand. And um, just remember going to different balls in the mid-90s, and it was, it was very problematic because they had categories light skin versus dark and lovely. And I'm like, okay, why are we doing this? You know, and, and, and just having conversation with people in the community who are really involved in a ballroom scene, and they're, they're not seeing it as a problem, you know. So um, the 90s was really about um, just surviving, but also at the same time, there was a lot of um, anti-blackness that folks participated in, even black folks, you know, and, you know, um, to my Latina trans girlfriends, a lot of them, we had the same complexion and same hair texture because they were Afro-Latino, -Lat um, Latina, 
and um, coming from Puerto Rico and Dominican Republic, but when you when I would tell them or say, well, you're black, like, oh no, I'm Indio. I'm oh no, I'm you know, I'm like, um, go down south. They'll tell you what you are, <laughs> you know, and and just really, um, just that's the main thing I really hated about. New York in the 90s, it wasn't even trans or femme queen stuff, it was like race stuff, where it was a lot of um, very blatant anti-blackness going on, and, and, and the the more you, you played up being multi-racial or, or mixed or something other than black, the more people elevated to you, you know? So, um, yeah, so love-hate of, of the 90s. <laughs> What were the balls like in those years, the ballroom scene? The ballroom scene, it, very traumatic as far as I was concerned. You know, I've never really, I've participated more so as an observer. I did back in 1998 at the clubhouse. Miss Brittany Dillinger, if you're listening, yes, I'm calling you out. Um, she had me walk um, a category for the House of Ebony, and it was called, the name, and they have these categories, so the name of the category was Butch Queen, Femme Queen, Realness as a Couple. Can you walk through the pink houses without getting spooked? You know, and so she paired me up with a Butch Queen. A Butch Queen is an MSM, a, a, a gay, I guess you say, a MSM, look it up, because I don't want to say gay man. But um, they paired me up with this, this Butch Queen, it got down to me and this other couple, and I remember like the um, the last judge. He had to he asked me if I was a femme queen, and femme queen is trans. Um, I'm like yes, I'm I'm a femme queen. He's like work, bitch, and then he gave it to the other couple, <laughs> and so they won. I'm like okay, so why ask me and and tell me work? But um, I felt validated because people were born and felt like, you know, and they told me, oh, you should have, I should have got that. that, you know. So there was a lot of politics in, in ballroom scene. There still is. Um, I've, I don't mind going to balls from time to time, but I'm not really a fan of the ballroom scene. I feel that um, they, they have an opportunity to do, um, to get involved in activism, to do a better job of promoting the issues in our community, and quite a few of them are getting involved, but for the most part, the ballroom scene has a lot of problems still, you know, and unfortunately, as a community leader, I see a lot of ballroom people who are in positions at, and who are in positions where they're recognized as leaders incorporate a lot of that ballroom politics into community activism, and that is a problem because it's not about, it's because of me that we have this. I got a war from the, from the mayor, da-da-da, because at the end of the day, our community is still struggling. So when you make it about you, you're not really um, helping the community that you are, that you say you're representing, you know? So the ballroom scene has, how do they say? Pros and deltas, you know, and so they, there's a lot of work that has to happen. Um, I must say that I was only fixated in a ballroom as long as I knew, like, um, Octavia St. Laurent or Daniel Revlon was going to be there. My favorite category in the ballroom was any category that had to do with femme queen face, femme queen body, <laughs> you know, and that was it. So as long as you told me around this time is when you, when they're, 
when the, these categories were going to be um, on, you know, on display, I didn't really care about who was on the floor. Yeah. Where would balls be held? So they held balls in various locations, you know, like primarily the clubhouse. Sometimes they would rent out spaces. Um, and the spaces were not fancy at, at all. A lot of times they would be in gyms, you know, like, um, so they were just spaces where um, a lot of escapism where people, they fix it up to make you forget you're actually in a gym or, you know, a moldy old building somewhere, you know, in, in a back alley. And besides sex work, how did film queens, you know, make ends meet? Well, there are many ways that Femme Queens did that. Like, one of the main ways was um, they would say that they, there was a category um, in um, the psychiatric books called gender dysphoria. So a lot of girls, they used that as a way, like a safety net, so that they didn't have to sell their bodies. So they um, went to route of saying, oh, I'm gender dysphoric. So therefore, they got a check from the government, you know. Um, there was also this schism that happened where um, white trans women would say, oh, we're going to actively fight to get gender dysphoria taken off the books because there's nothing wrong with us and da-da-da. And I remember, like, the black and Latina girls were like, um, excuse you. You know, um, this is our safety net, and we don't have any problem saying that we are gender dysphoric. If it's going to give us housing, if it's going to keep us off the streets, so check your privilege. You know, so it was like back and forth of um, of those. Is this like public assistance, or I mean, the late nineties. Um, so a lot was late nineties was it wasn't public assistance; it was more social social security. Okay. So you got a. Um, a a SSD check because yeah. it was considered like a disability, okay. and so um, it saved a lot of girls because a lot a lot of girls were not made to be sex workers. You know, they just that's, they weren't not inclined to be sex workers, and so I can say that it saved a lot of girls. Yeah. You know, and a lot of girls when um, they were thrown into sex work, they didn't survive it. You know, and 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 they were traumatized, beaten, and. A lot of traumatic things happen to them. So I can say um, having gender dysphoria as a way for them to um, get housing and, and not be in that that world, it really saved a lot of them. How did you get in, uh, into activism? <sighs> so activism for me happened by accident. I've always been an activist, but at the same time, because like I said, at Kojic, Church of God in Christ, I had this condemning, I felt condemned in my spirit. I wasn't meant to have good things in my life. Other folks could have good things in their life, not me. Um, I remember like we have this term called breaking, suns breaking sunset, where girls who are on the stroll, we stay out until sun the sun's coming up. And I remember this was on 13th Street, what is now like the meat market area that is all posh. Gansevoort Hotel, uh, the High Line. Uh, let me tell you, none of that existed back then. It was nasty, but it was a lot of fun. A lot of money was made back there. But um, leaving, I remember somebody hearing somebody call my name, and I happened to look. It was like a group of folks getting on the bus. And during that time, I found myself like 
like homeless and I was going towards island shelter. And so I went over to see who called me and they're like, girl, come on, you better get on this bus. I'm like, um, where y'all going? And they told me I was going to DC to to fight for Ryan White funding and that I don't know anything about Ryan White funding or anything like that. I'm like, um, how long is it from DC to here? To to um New York to DC. And when they told me it was like four hours, give or take. The only thing I was thinking about is that's four hours for me to get some sleep wow. and not be disturbed. And so I got on the bus because there was room for me to get on the bus. Um, like halfway through New Jersey, someone tapped on my shoulder and woke because I was asleep because I, I was mad tired. Um, woke me up and they told me I needed to sign for a stipend. I'm like, a stipend? They're like, yeah, you get a stipend for the day and da da da. At that time, I believe the stipend was $25. Um, I'm like, ooh, you get a stipend? Okay. <laughs> you know, and so I signed. Um, I went back to sleep. And then I was trying to think of, like, okay, when I get to DC, where can I go t to, like, get some more sleep? And I remember, like, once I got to DC, there were all these other organizations from around the nation there. And I remember, like, I saw a lot of gender nonconforming people, a lot of trans people, um, people of color, people who just had this energy and this passion. And I'm like, wow, where I forgot about what I was going to do to where I just got in a mix of, like, like holding signs. They asked people to volunteer to hold banners. and different. I'm like, okay. It's, you know, because I was meeting all these amazing people. And so it really inspired me like to like oh, oh I want to do this more this, this is you know it was fun listening to people talk about um, um, the rights of people living with HIV for housing and you know there's a lot of um, like speakers and folks who did, did not treat me like I had like a third eye so you know like you know I had a they treated me like a human being you know they didn't look at me like oh what is this black queer person who has like, and I looked a mess. If you see pictures of me back then, thank God there was no internet. But um, yes, I was a mess, but at the same time, people embraced me and let me know that I had worth, you know? And so that really got me involved back in, in activism. And just remember like coming back to the city and, and I was still engaging in sex work, but at the same time, when I heard girls going through different things, I'm like, oh no. Where? Who did this? You know what? You need to go to Housing Works. You need to go to so-and-so. Oh, you don't have to put up with this shit. You know, I'm just letting them know, like, there are things they can do. There's recourse for them, you know. And at the same time, I'm going through a lot of, I was going through a lot of crap myself. But I felt like, oh, well, I'm, I'm meant to. The pastor told me that, yeah, there's nothing good comes from this life. So this is, this is my lot. I'm supposed to be suffering and struggling. And so I was always that girl when we went to clubs or people's homes or people wanted to go out for the night, they knew to leave their stuff with me because I was, I did not, I was, I'm blessed that I didn't have an addictive personality. So they didn't have to worry about um, leaving their stuff with me and then it would be gone the next day. So um, I spent a lot of time doing activism and, and I call it the girl on the corner complex. So I was always that girl on the corner. Um, who, you know, was soliciting the dates, you know, in broad daylight, 12 o'clock in the afternoon, me and Brandy, God bless her, you know, and other girls, but at the same time telling girls where they can go and, and get um, 
services and clean needles and oh they're having a protest against the mayor you know and da 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 and like you know so I, so activism went hand in hand like and I tell people this all the time that's why like one of our our um, our model is building bridges and dismantling stereotypes you know because I always tell my folks you can be that girl on the corner but you also can be someone meeting with legislators you can be someone you know helping to change policies you know and um i feel that it's very important for girls to understand that like yeah you can be a sex worker and be like oh you talking about the sex worker yeah but you can be a sex worker at night but in the daytime you're getting business done and i spent a lot of time um in that realm to where like I was a peer educator for a long time, like at Harlem United. Mm -hmm. um, I worked at Frosted, um, called From Our Streets on the Caravan. So I always like, even though I was struggling myself, I also was like giving back, and I was also um, able to get folks into referrals and get them connected to to um, what they needed. You know? What year did you uh, get on that bus to DC? That would have been. 90, 99? Mm -hmm. Yeah, 99. 98, late 98, early 99. And it was Housing Works? Housing Works. It was a Housing Works bus. Yes, 13. That's when um, right. Housing Works had a 13th Street site. And the Cobblestone Streets right. down there. Yeah, I missed that site. But yeah, it was, um, I would say Housing Works helped to refine me and, and, and to, to and, and I'm going to say this as well. During that time, there was a lot of people living with HIV, um, are impacted by HIV, that worked at Housing Works. So it was a place where you saw a case manager. That case manager was living with HIV. You know, you saw it was a place that, um, for a good up until like two thousand and two, Housing Works really did employ a lot of trans women, a lot of gender nonconforming people of color. Because I, I believe like around. Up until like 2002, the academic world didn't want to touch HIV and AIDS. So you didn't really see a lot of, so a lot of folks who were in these spaces were gay white men, um, black MSMs, um, black trans women, Latina, you know, drug, active drug users who were really, not only were they um, case managers and, and, and CEOs and things of that nature, but they were living with the virus. Um, like today is very different. Like there's a lot of academic folks, you know, involved in a lot of these CBOs, and I, I think like that helped me as well. That it helped that a lot of the people at Housing Works at that time were also living with the with the um, virus. So I didn't feel like it was like they they were up here talking down to me. They were like, you know what? I've been HIV for such and such amount of time, da-da-da, you can do it, da, da we're in this together. And I remember that message of being in this together. Um, there is a disconnect now. But, like, back then, there was really that sense of, like, okay, oh, oh she's HIV, oh, okay. You know, and people that you would look at, you're like, I didn't know you was HIV. Oh, am I supposed to tell you? How, do, how does someone look at HIV look? You know, and so it was, like, really fascinating back then to really be in spaces where, People who looked healthy on the outside was de were dealing with HIV, and so um, I didn't feel like there was judgment being passed on me. Yeah. You know. 
And you mentioned that you were uh, sleeping at the Wards Island shelter. Yes. How? Tell me some about living in the shelters. Living in the shelter was an interesting experience. Wards Island. I also remember that was another place where there was a lot of activism in place because mm -hmm. um, I had just turned. I was transitioning. I had already transitioned to where I looked feminine on the outside. I did not have my um, gender marker changed or my name changed. For the most part, a lot of times people are always surprised when I tell them this. The guys loved the girls. And when I say they loved us, it wasn't like because they wanted to sleep with us. It was like also they looked out for us. You know, there, I hear a phone, I think it's my phone. But um, <laughs> there was a lot of um, look, um, guys looking out for us. and. The girls, we always made any place we were. Feminine energy is very strong. And so, like, the guys just love being, like, around us. And, like, because we always made spaces a lot more welcoming and safe. And so, um, from time to time, there would be folks who were transphobic coming in. But a lot of the transphobia came from the staff and not from the clients themselves. Um, so, a lot of the problems that me and a lot of other girls and gender nonconforming folks face were from the staff, um, primarily um, cis female women of color. Yeah, and I remember one time, like um, it was lunchtime. No, it was it was um, dinner time, and I remember like the guys like ladies, come on, ladies, y'all can come up here. And it would be like three or four of us, and we're like, oh okay, and we would go to the front of the line. Mind you, the, the line is snaking around. You know, like going all the way back to like dorm one, and there was this this African American woman, Wanda, who who um she is watching all of this go down because you know they they're observing and seeing, making sure people are not cutting the line, which I, I get and I understand. But I remember like she made it a point to say, "Gentlemen, this is a men's shelter." The only females in here are the staff. And you know, you know, like, ooh, Shay, ooh. <laughs> yeah. You know, and so it was always like from cis females where they just got in their feelings because the guys were looking out for us. And also a lot of those cis females and and there was quite a few gay men staff who weren't so nice to the girls. Um, but part of that was because they were sleeping with a lot of the guys in the shelter. You know, a lot of those guys would go, would go home. And like from time to time, guys would be gone for a week to two weeks, and then later later on, we found out like this staff member or that staff member took them home, and you know, and then until they stole something from the house, and you know, all the other crap <laughs> that goes along with um, dealing with um, folks who have various addiction problems. And so, what we realized is that. The staff saw us as competition um, to get the guys that they wanted. And I'm like, um, most of these guys, they were nice. And not everybody, not all, and I think there's another stereotype. There's a lot of guys th that was in the shelter that were working, but they were just priced out of apartments, you know? So I remember having different guys um, take me and my girlfriends out to dinner, take us to the movies, spend money on a hotel for the weekend. So these were working guys, but at the same time, you know, they were trying to, it was find a, hard to find housing. And so a lot of them were saving, saving money just to get an apartment. 
how many trans women were living at wards? I would say give or take. And you have to also understand, like, maybe like at the, like 11 trans women, mm-hmm. but for every trans woman, there's at least five or six gender nonconforming yeah. folks. Yeah. So it was a larger population of gender nonconforming folks who um, were in the shelter. So um, from time to time, we merged and looked out for one another. Okay. Were there um, identities or names, gender nonconforming people there used to describe their own genders or the way they were in the world? Well, because... I come from an era where we call everybody by feminine gender. Yeah. You know, like when we got into, like, if there was a guy who came in and he was, like, had issues, we were like, look at her. She's Karen. <laughs> you know? So we call it, so we used to do that with God. So we, f- female gender is what we use for everyone. Yeah. If a guy tried it, he was like, what did she say? <laughs> you know, kind of get the more irked and all that. And, like, most of the gender nonconforming people, like if you ask them, they like, oh, at the end of the day, I know I'm a man, you know. So, yeah. but it was confusing for me because I saw some of them, like they had their nails manicured, you know, they was look like, you know, they got did their face, did their hair, every now and then they have feminine garments on. Um, so it was like a, a, a crossroads of, of 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 the gender nonconforming community. In there, and you know, um, I remember this one. She's still around. Her name is. We called her Miss Cookie. And Miss Cookie, I remember when they told me, "Oh, Miss Cookie's back. Miss Cookie's back." I'm like, "Okay, who's this Miss Cookie?" And I'm looking for like this, like a film queen, or and so it's this this person who I went to the bathroom. She had these massive hands and just, you know, did not look like what I thought. Like, you know. But she trying to be a sweetheart, and I remember like she had this raspy voice, and she like, "Mama, you have any problems? Let me know." You know, I'm like, "Okay," <laughs> you know. And I remember witnessing her. Um, it was a guy because she served in the kitchen. It's, it's a program called PBT Project Breakthrough, and it was a way that um, you could make a little bit of money while you was in the shelter, mm-hmm. save up to to find an apartment. Um, and I remember, like, this guy had made the mistake of calling her a faggot. And I remember her, just, and people were like, Cookie, don't, Cookie. Where she picked, <laughs> she literally picked him up and threw him across the cafeteria, you know. And everybody's just like, oh, it's, you know. And the guy is on the ground, and she's over there, like, pounding him. And, you know, so next thing we know, the police came and, and locked her up. And, um, yeah, but um, there was... There was a lot of interesting people. You know, Cookie is one of them. I remember like her just being such a sweetheart, though. You know, did you did a lot of friends get locked up during that time? People were being locked up. Yeah, um, and I would say that a lot of it was intentional. Mm-hmm. You know, because they felt safer in in a jail than they did in a shelter. Um, it was a cry for attention. They, they felt lost in the system. So going to jail was like a step up to them because at least, you know, they would be in a system and they would meet, you know. So um, a lot of people got got caught up in the system, you know. And, and um, it was, like I said, like the 90s, and I, I'm always coming across contemporaries like, girl, remember? Don't you miss the 90s? I'm like, No. But at the same time, I understand there was like it was it was fun, but at the same time, it was scary, 
you know. And so um, would I want to go back to that time? No, no. I think now is the perfect time. So you mentioned getting involved in Frosted and Harlem United. Yeah. Tell me about the activism. So activism just came naturally to me where I uh, I love meeting people. I love um, like letting folks know about services, know about like legislations that um, could help them. And so we needed folks to show up and to go up to Albany, go to City Hall. Mm-hmm. I remember like one of my proudest moments is getting girls to um, go to City Hall when they signed the local law, like in 2002, mm-hmm. where we could use the bathroom of our choice. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people don't realize like that law has been in existence since 2002. It's not a recent law. Mm-hmm. You know, yes, it got reinforced recently by the mayor, but that law has been on the books since 2002. And a lot of times people are not aware of that. But I also remember like just people, especially, um, people of color, like when I started getting them connected, they like, I saw how they became empowered. So that made me feel good too, yeah. So uh, Housing Works was uh, pretty active in 2003 around trying to get trans rights included in the state bill. Yeah, the Sonda Sexual Orientation and Discrimination Act. Mm -hmm. Yeah, were you involved? I was there, I was there from the beginning. Sonda, it was Miss Cookie, another Cookie. You'll find there's a lot of folks named Cookie in our community. (laughs) Um, Miss Cookie, Bolly White, Melissa Sklars, um, um, Mariah Lopez, she was very young at that time. It's a group of us, and there's a, actually a picture in this in this on this floor around the corner, from Charles King's office of of us taking a, a group picture with our Sonda badges and all that. And so, um, yeah, I mean Arlene Hoffman. I can't believe I can't forget Miss Arlene Hoffman. Rest in peace, Melissa um, Madison St. Clair. I'm just trying to make sure because a lot of these folks are still alive. So I want to give them a shout out. Um, <laughs> you know, and so yes, yeah, so, so Sonda was an exciting time, you know, and as you may be aware, it was also disappointing because what happened was cis, white, gay, and lesbians decided they could go a lot further by throwing the trans and gender nonconforming folks under the bus. So they were able to get protections and trans and gender nonconforming people were not. So um, Charles King, was a, uh, along with some other folks, came up with a new bill called Gender. Gender Expression and Discrimination Act. And that was another 16 years of, of fighting and to, to get protections and public accommodations and, and um, getting legislators to um, support the trans community. So it's an ongoing thing, yeah. yeah. Uh, do you remember anything? Uh, do you have a story about the, the bill being passed in New York City? That- Transgender Civil Rights Act. When it first was passed in 2002? I just remember we were very excited. We felt like we had recourse and Mm -hmm. um, just the fact that um, we purposely would go into places and and dare them to kick us out the bathroom because we have rights now. Mm -hmm. You can't kick us out. We're protected. You know, and so it was a lot of that (laughs) where... I had a girl. I have a girlfriend who she's still around. I'm not gonna say her name because she'll get mad once I tell this story. But we was in a McDonald's, and this is right before that bill got passed. Mm-hmm. It was a McDonald's on Broadway, and 
we went to go use the bathroom. And mind you, like I have a, a deep raspy voice, but her voice got has bass bass in it. And I remember like this girl, this woman who was in one of the stalls, this female, woman, female, she rushed out and she looked at me. She goes, is there a man in here? I'm like, no. <laughs> and then she rushed out. And then I'm like, girl, you better hurry up. She's going to go get ma the management. And then um, my girlfriend like, let her go get the man. You know, I'm, like, I'm not going to end because you think I'm <laughs> But anyway, I'm like, let's just hurry up. And she's taking her time being nonchalant about like, the entire situation. Like 10, 15 minutes later, management comes in with um, all like the, the staff of the McDonald's and they're like going to the stall, like knocking on it and like, and she's like, what's the problem? And he's like, excuse me, sir, you're in the, you're in the women's bathroom and da da da. And um, you know, so it was a lot of trauma and misgendering. Yeah. And I just remember, and, and this, I was telling her like, but don't forget what you did. And um, so I'm trying to explain to them like she's she's she has a right to be in the bathroom, um, but she threw me under the bus. <laughs> and she's like, "You didn't say anything to my girl." I'm like doing her voice because her voice is is recognizable, and I do her voice very well. <laughs> so I'm not gonna do it. But she's like, "Well, how come you didn't say anything to my girlfriend? She's trans like I am, you know." And then they like stop, and they looked at me, looked me up and down. It's like. Well, the problem is you. Can you come out, sir? <laughs> you know. And then I remember, like, um, it was like back and forth between her and and them. And then finally, they was like, we, I'm like, come on, girl, let's go, let's go. So I finally convinced her, it, like, let's, we don't have to fight everyone, you know. But like, also being in my feelings that she went, she outed me number one because outing someone is a form of violence. Okay, if you, uh, it doesn't matter. It's your girlfriend when you out someone. It's an act of violence, and um, but we can laugh about it now, right? But like, just you know, me telling her, like, why did you have to out me to them just because you were were we use a term called spooked because they spooked you. Now you're upset. You you feel like you have to out me, um, but I can say like that happened a lot before local law, you know, where people didn't even have to hear you speak. They just looked you up and down and like, I think that's a man, and would go get, you know, I, I can tell you, like, in the 90s, there's many times we would, would go to McDonald's. McDonald's at the time was the main place we would go um, and eat Wendy's. Wendy's wasn't as bad. Where, But it seemed like every time we went to McDonald's, especially on the West 4, that is still there, we always say it has some type of spirit because they always have fights there even to this day. But... It seemed like they always wanted to kick us out, even if we ordered a meal and we were sitting down, you know. But, um, yeah, like, local law really helped to empower a lot of us, you know, just making sure, like, I remember going to each um, welfare center, HASA office, and letting folks know um, that they could use the, the, um, the bathroom that, they, their, that matches their gender and that they feel... Um, represents who they are, and just having, making sure I had like the, you know, the um, the law to pass out to them, and like from time to time people would try with this. I'm like, do you see this? You're violating the law, you know, and people would back off, and you know, so I really love activism because it's a way of getting our communities connected, you know, because a lot of times people are are fighting 
and, 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 and um, by themselves and they don't have to. You know, there's resources, there's organizations out there that can assist them, you know, and um, that's one of the main reasons, like, NITAG, New York Transgender Advocacy Group, came along just because we wanted to also let them know, like, we are an organization that we want to amplify your concerns, we want to make sure that whatever issues that you are dealing with, that we can put it on a larger platform, you know. I want to ask you about NITAG, but before that, that when the local law passed, how much concrete difference did that actually make for people? You're describing bathrooms. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I've been trying to figure out or understand. So the law bans discrimination in employment, but like girls still have a really hard time getting jobs these days. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, where did it make a difference? Where did it not make a difference? So that's a good question to ask. And I, I feel like I tell, okay, I, I tell folks all the time, the conversation I have with, with them is like, it's not enough to just talk about equality and, right. and, and we demand equality under the law. We also demand equity. We ask for investment in our communities because um, the fact that we could use the bathroom of our choice did not negate the fact that we were still homeless and we were still um, making a living, etching out a living like on a stroll and, and, and just doing things that... Um, put our lives at greater risk. You know, so having protections, it does, it, it is a start, but that's not the end, in the end all to our, um, our situation. There needs to be an um, investment in our community that only comes through understanding equity and equity building in um, marginalized communities and, and getting folks to understand, yes, secure our rights, but also make sure you're investing in our future by making sure that there's training programs to where we have um, competitive skill sets to where we can um, find a job. You know, but if you have been removed from um, the economic play field, then it's very hard for you to, all of a sudden, because we have rights, we still don't have the, the trainings. We don't have the uh, we don't have the skill set needed to be be competent. I mean to be competitive, you know. And I talk a lot about transferable skills, and that we have a lot of transferable skills. And how do we start transferring those skills into where we can make a living and um, have choices, and not to negate, not to bash sex workers because. There are community members who they feel validated. Sex work validates them. So it's not to negate, it's not to bash them and say, oh, you shouldn't do sex work because you have options now. It's to let them know, like, you have options now. So if you decide that you want to do something different than sex work, fine. Because I feel that it plays into shaming community members who still engage in sex work. You know, but I feel like what we need to be addressing is is equity, like investments in our community, but also getting those folks who feel validated by um, sex work, not to shame them, but let them know they have choices. You know? So when did NITAG come about? So NITAG came about 2014, October 2014. Yeah. And so the, between when you first got involved in activism yeah. and starting NITAG, did the activism change much? Did the scene change? I mean, those were a lot of years. So what, yeah, yeah. what happened during that time? 
Um, quite a bit happened as far as funding out there yeah. that is trans-specific. Um, also, trans women were realizing, like, um, hello, we, we, we're here and we're not being invested in. We're here and people are still um, ignoring us. And so what happened was um, there, there was a mobilization of, of trans organizations. And, like, um, there's quite a few trans-led organizations in New York City. Um, I believe there's, like, seven that I know of, you know. Um, and that is a beautiful thing. And I always tell people, like, it's good to have have options, you know, and it's good that there is a, um, there's a need that is being met, you know, and um, so like NITAG, we're one of many trans-led organizations, but what I feel makes us different is that we're one of the, the few organizations that's trans-led by um, trans women of color. Um, we understand it's not just about addressing homelessness is about addressing policies. It's about um, creating policies, um, impacting policies, that because it's structures that we have to address. And there's reasons why there's outcomes that put us at greater risk of violence and, and HIV infection rate that um, providing housing can't address. You know, and so like, so one of the things we do is making sure that uh, we have um, legislative visits, that we meet with city council folks, that we work on our, our own policies, we do our own trainings. Um, one thing that we are going to be doing in, we're doing collaborations right now, is co-ops to um, get transgen transgender and gender nonconforming people to understand, as I was saying earlier about transferable skills. A lot of talented, gifted trans women, gender nonconforming people, they know how to, like, create lace front wigs, they know how to do makeup, they know how to create jewelry, beautiful jewelry pieces. So we're in the process of helping get a space where they can make a living to sell their their goods in a in like a one like a one stop shop. So like on this side of the of the building would be a, a, a beauty shop. Like on the other side, if you are interested in like jewelry or, or there's someone selling, you know, so it'll be a space where um, um, folks who say that trans lives matter can actually start investing in trans lives, you know, because trans lives matter should not just be a um, a verbal, like a, just like a, a this beautiful slogan we use. It should be seen in, in folks' actions and how people prove to trans folks that our lives matter is by investing in us and not just saying, yes, yes, trans lives matter, absolutely. You guys rock and keep on moving. And, you know, um, currently, like, what's going on, and you may may or may not be aware, like, we had trans um, eight trans murder, murders this year. You know, seven trans women and one trans man, um, all of African-American um, descent. And that speaks to structures that we have to address, you know, and, and communities that, you know, one of the things we're, we're in the process of doing, and part of this is collaborations with other community partners um, from the ballroom scenes, um, but also meeting with city council folks so that we can have ongoing conversations about how to address, you know, the violence waged against um, black trans women and men, you know, primarily by other people of color, you know, and... Part of that is like addressing 
structures and, and how these structures have existed in a way that kind of sends the um, signal that it's okay. We're it's okay to target us because we're not protected. Or, you know, um, if you don't see any type of inclusionary policies, or if the pastor is condemning. Um, LGBT folks, then it kind of gives people like the idea, like, oh, okay, yeah, pastor says it's okay, so let's go and stone them, and, you know. So like, um, we do a lot of interfaith type workshops with um, the black, with the African American church, um, and as well as with because uh, Karima is of Muslim. I'm sorry, <laughs> so she's of Muslim faith, and so she does a lot of workshops too to let folks know why how, why it's important to. Um, incorporate us into into respect our existence and um, not see us as oh those folks because at the end of the day when most people see us they don't know we're trans unless we reveal that to them but the first thing they do see is skin you know and and so um, getting our community to understand because we I've done a lot of workshops where like I, I've actually had like I did a workshop at Long Island University, LIU, uh, about two years ago. And there's large, the students' population was primarily people of color, South Asian, African American. And I remember um, this African American girl, she was like, after I finished and I had like a question and answer period, she's like, as an African American woman, I'm outraged that um, you trans folks are going through what you're going through because I feel that you trans folks should have the same rights. And it sounded beautiful. But I had to remind her, like, um, I'm African-American just like you're African-American. So there shouldn't be this disconnect of, like, oh, you're trans, so therefore it negates your blackness. You know, and I feel like it goes hand in hand, you know, because um, that's a conversation that happens a lot with our community members who are not trans is they kind of see us as, like, no longer being black, but trans only. And that is not the case. Do you remember uh, any early conversations where you were thinking about NITAG or forming it, the need to bring it together? Yeah, because it was a group of seven of us, and the name was like a vote. Like people mm -hmm. like, oh, what should we call ourselves? And um, Somebody, one of our, the co-founders said, New York Transgender Advocacy Group. So we had to look and see like if there was a, a group in existence called NITAG. So we went online. Um, we saw NITAG, but it was not a group. It was a, it was a same, not your average Asian girl. Right, <laughs> not your, not, yeah, not your typical Asian girl. And so I'm like, okay, well, okay. And it was just funny because we do have, um, some members who are of Asian background. So I'm like, well, we do have Asian people in our organization. So I thought that was cute that, because um, we never heard that saying before, not your typical Asian girl. And um, one thing I've been a big um, proponent of, as like folks in here can witness too, is like, and I kind of said this earlier, I grew up Church of God in Christ. There's a saying, um, it's called the Seven Sons of Siva, and it's about how... Um, these brothers saw Paul casting out demons, and they were like, come, let's, let us do the same thing that he's doing. And so they came across someone who was demon-possessed, and they, they, they laid hands on, on the person. And the demon said, Jesus I know, Paul I know, who are you? 
And they came out of the possessed man into the brothers, and the brothers ran into the um, sea naked because they didn't have any authority. They didn't, they didn't know by whose name demons were being cast out of. And so, like, I use that, <laughs> I use that because I told people, like, by whose name are we doing these things? Like, we're NITAG, so that means we need to be incorporated. That means we need to be a nonprofit because people are not going to respect the fact that we're just a group of trans women of color who we have meetings every, you know, weekly meetings, but we're not incorporated. We're not a 501c3. And so people are on board with that. But also what happens a lot of times is the idea sounds great, but when you put it into action, people are like, oh, girl, Oh, why we got to sign these papers? Oh, why we got to, how much? Oh, girl, I'm on a fixed income. So a lot of the, the heavy lifting, you know, um, I just went out, came out of my own pocket to, like, just really make sure it was getting done because I truly felt like um, this was the best way to show folks that we were serious about what we are setting out to do as opposed to people just sitting at a table, lip service, and like, yeah, let's do that, yeah. And then I say, well, it costs such and such, so if we all give 20, and then it's like, excuse me, excuse you, what? You know I'm on a fixed income, right? And so, and so to alleviate a lot of that, I'm like, I just come out of my own pocket so that we can be incorporated. And that how, that's how the process started. You mentioned that uh, over the years there's been a little more funding for trans services. Yes. Do you, why, why is that? And I have to say, it's, it's, it's a good thing, but it's also a bad thing when most of the funding is coming from um, um, funders who see, who understand and recognize disparities, health disparities. And so a lot of the funding comes from like Ryan White funding, um, CDC. Um, so it, it, it's primarily because they see us as a health risk, a public health risk. So therefore, it's like, well, let's get, let's get them funded. And so I think it's great that there's funding opportunities like that out there. But one thing that we are pushing to do as well is to make sure that we get Fortune 500 companies to understand the importance of investing in trans-led um, organizations, especially of color. Because as I said before, equality with the lack of equity is like, it's still, you know, it still creates this discordant to where, um, I have all these rights, but I'm, I'm homeless, or I, you know, I'm, I'm being pushed out of my, my neighborhood because I can't afford to, to pay my rent. And you know, so I, I feel that we have to spend as much time talking about equity as we do mm-hmm. equality. What were some of the first things that you worked on in NITAC? So like some of the first things that we did was we had community members like, um, there was a case where a community member was um, assaulted in the Stonewall um, Club, and which is ironic, right, Stonewall. And um, we did a major protest. And let me get it right, it wasn't Stonewall, it was a monster, at the monster. And so um, we did a, a, a mobilization um, and to where we had a good, like, 60 community members come out. We also had um, media there, you know, to address the fact that this LGB club in the village assaulted a trans woman. 
you know, and so that was one of the major things that we did. Um, then we did various workshops throughout um, since 2014. In 2015, I um, was able to have my folks go to Syracuse to kick off the, the blueprint. And the blueprint is um, tied into um, the governor's three pillars of how to end the epidemic in New York State. And so I was able to make connections with folks from the AIDS Institute to get us to Troy to talk about and do trainings that um, address the needs of the trans community. So some of the things we've been able to do is really just do a lot of the more like trainings, like um, we trained um, upstate, we trained like the sheriff department up there. So it was like a two day training. And that was an amazing experience where we, um, I had all these um, law officials not understanding like the different structures that create, um, you know, because a lot of times people say, oh, black trans women, yeah, they're, they, they're, they're prostitutes. And like getting to understand, yeah, black trans women may be prostitutes, but understand the reasons behind that. It wasn't because they woke up one day and said, you know what, I'm gonna be a prostitute. It was because circumstances where if you don't address the fact that there's discrimination, if you're not talking about if you're not getting your legislators to push and support gender, you're gonna to continue to see people of color, trans women, as prostitutes. Because yeah, what, how else are we gonna make a living? You know, so I was able to get them to understand, like, yeah, there's a reason why you have black and Latina trans women who, who are prostitutes, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I really like the feedback I got from that workshop, you know, and getting folks to who are not trans to do their part of like being in solidarity with us and, and like getting everyone at the table to commit, you know, like, cause I'm good. That's one thing I like doing is making sure like, before we leave today, I wanna hear from folks around this table, how they are going to commit to, to, to um, supporting the trans community, you know? And so one by one people go around and say, you know, tell us like what they would do and what they're willing to do to, um, make sure that trans folks are um, have equal rights but also are invested in. So I like those type of workshops and those are the ones that um, I really feel are more impactful because it's not, you know, trans community as you may know, we're not like this large, like, like, like when you say African American or Hispanic, these are sizable populations. The trans community is, is, is not that large but we get so much negative media attention and media attention about, oh, there's trans women using the, the, the women's bathroom. Like, yeah, because we're women and we're gonna use the women's bathroom. Yes, get over it. But I feel that when we educate cis folks and get them to understand, this is how you can be in solidarity with us, is by letting folks know that as a trans woman, I have the right to, for, to, um, to work, I have the right to go to school, wherever. I have all the rights that you you have, or I should have all the rights that you have. And this is how you do your part. And so I like doing workshops and trainings because it's a way that we can be, we can like create these armies to go out and, and, and help us do battle and, and change laws and, and policies and, and probably change a, um, like a lot of the business owners' ideas of like, oh yeah, you know what? I did this amazing workshop, and I'm interested in, in bringing on trans women as, as interns. You know, and I feel like that's where we can be the most impactful right now, you know, as well as addressing like other um, like policies and things of that nature.
What in activism has been most challenging for you? The most challenging thing in activism is getting the girls to come to the table. Mm. Um, trans women of color, we spend so much time seeing each other as competition. And that comes from the stroke, like because we were, we're, um, we're in competition on the stroll to get a date. We, we sometimes bring that to the work we do. You know, so that's one of the major problems that I have come across is getting folks to understand when we come into a space, we come in sisterhood, we come to build. You're not my enemy, you're my sister. I'm here to uplift you, you're here to uplift us. You know, getting them to understand, like, being in these spaces is part of the healing process. You know, we talk a lot about trauma, but how we get beyond trauma is to address the trauma, but also get to a point of healing. You know, because I'm not interested in just being about talking about trauma. I'm interested in healing. And so, like, we have to make sure that, oh, I can't be in that space with so-and-so because you know what she did to me 15 years ago. You know what she did to me 15 years ago, girl. I'm like, okay, that was 15 years ago. So you're going to hold on to that today, you know? And so, like, getting folks to just heal from past traumas that... Um, we have inflicted upon one another. You know? what, what do you think drives that competition? Part of it is um, we don't create affirming spaces for trans women as well as trans men. But trans women, because we, um, the, the data is out there that, that shows the disparities that we deal with. I, I speak a lot about trans women of color. Um, but there's not a lot of affirming spaces for trans women. And I want to say this, CBOs, businesses, the school system, to a degree in New York City, they're understanding about creating inclusive policies. But you can have inclusive policies, but there's a difference between being inclusive and affirming. And so we need to make sure that Businesses, organizations are not just inclusive, they are affirming of our experience. Have you, know? you uh, seen any progress in dealing with businesses around employment? Or? Yeah, there is, I mean, there, there's still a lot of work to be done, but for the most part, um, there's, I, I see traction where, where businesses are willing to invest. You know, I see scholarships that are out there for trans women to go back to school, Things of, and that's something that was not thought of or are not known to exist on the scale that it does like 10 years ago. So there has been a lot of, of, of progress, you know, and we still have a long ways to go, but there is progress being made, you know, and um, I just feel like it's up to everyone who truly believe in um, making sure that everyone has access to education, housing, just, you know, I feel it's everybody's responsibility, not just trans women, not just trans men, but everyone's responsibility to make sure when they're creating job opportunities, scholarships, that it's inclusive. When you're creating um, healing spaces for women, that it's inclusive of trans women, you know, um, and that's really important. 
you know, that folks understand that, that we all can play a part. You don't have to be trans to get involved in trans issues. You know, respect trans leadership. We um, allow us to say what it, what we need, but also do your part. And like, you know, because we're not able to be in these spaces meeting with business folks and Fortune 500 companies like a lot of cis folks are. So it's a responsibility of our cis brothers and sisters to do that for us. And for bringing trans women to NITAC to the table, uh, how do you go about doing that? What is the outreach like? What is engagement like? How do you convince people to be a part? It, it varies. It varies. You know, we do outreach, but at the same time, you know, it's, it's I speak of my own experience of like when I have flyers and like I see girls and trans, we, we pretty much know other trans and you know, especially with younger girls, it's kind of funny. I get it though. But like, I'm like, hey, my name is Kiara St. James. I want to let you know about a great organization that I feel like it could really um, be a, be beneficial to you. And I just want to give you some some literature, some information. And so they're like, and then when I give them the literature, I can see them like, <laughs> and they hand me the literature back because um, part of the problem um, that we come across is like a lot of trans folks don't identify as trans, you know? And so like when you have literature that is just, um, that says New York Transgender Advocacy Group, it can be problematic to some folks. So what I tend to tell my folks to do is like pass it out to everyone. So it's not like, oh, you just targeting me because I'm trans, oh, you spook me? How'd you spook me? I'm real, you know? And so, and I get that, you know, ego is, 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 is part of, what we all have, you know? And so, especially for trans youth, like if you see their, I'm using terms that folks can understand and relate to. So if you see their butch queen friend, you can like pass it out to, to them as well. Like pass one out to the, to the MSM, pass one out to the gender nonconforming, pass one out to the trans. And because something else we tell folks is like, just because we said New York Transgender Advocacy Group, doesn't mean we're just for trans people. You know, um, there's a lot of organizations in existence today that have more than just what they are setting out. You know, so so in Blaca National Black Leaders Commission on AIDS, they don't just have have black folks in their organization. We're the same way. Just because we're trans, we have um, we're getting ready. We're expanding to have an MSM program. Um, we have a Youth for Change program, and a lot of those folks. We just had a symposium Saturday. And we had almost 40 young folks go to that symposium. And I would say 80% of them were not trans. But that's fine, because I believe in intersectionality and, and making sure that we need to also learn how to be in spaces where we're not just segregated and just, oh no, why is that person here? Is they tr why, they're not trans, why are they at the table? Because in the real world, as I said earlier, we make up such a small, portion of, of, of the general population. We have to be in spaces where we have MSMs, we have folks who, and the main thing we, at, we ask, I ask, is that people respect the leadership of trans. If you're in the trans space, you know, so, you know, having conversations about someone's genitalia, things like that, we're not having, you know, and so, but um, it's, a, it's a process that we're learning, you know, trial and error, we're not, we're, we're working out the kinks still. You know, um, but that is um, how I tend to let, tell my folks is like, make sure that when you do outreach, you're, you're engaging everyone. 
and you treat everybody with respect, you know, because I find that a lot of times um, people tend to look at someone and like, oh, she used to, I just saw her digging out the trash can. I don't want her to, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. So um, just getting folks to understand that we are creating spaces that are safer and we are, we are, we are committing to creating safer spaces that are inclusive of all of our concerns, you know. Tell me a little bit about yourself and your life outside of the activism. Do you I'm trying to get a life outside of activism. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, one thing I did, and I started it last year, because it's funny, because I have a lot of girlfriends who are always saying, like, oh, let's go on a trip. Oh, let's go here. Let's go there. I'm like, yeah. And I'm always ready to do it. But then at the end of the day, they're like, girl, my coins ain't right. And so, but one thing I did last year, I'm like, you know what? I'm tired of waiting for other people to get their coins right. So I did do some self-care time in um as I said earlier, I lived, I grew up in Heidelberg, Germany. Yeah. So last year I went to, went back to Germany. I went to Berlin, and I visited um, my my childhood town where I grew up in um, Germany. But I also traveled like to Copenhagen, Prague, Vienna, day trips, and um, Paris. You know, and like one thing I discovered, like because I haven't been there in a while, it's like wow. I saw a megabus. I'm like, oh, they got a megabus over here. And my friend's like, well, actually, the megabus was created here. It's British. Yeah. 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 I'm like, well, I didn't know. I just thought it was an American thing, the megabus. So, yeah. you know, so um, that really inspired me to where I'm like, you know what? I would love to do this every year. So one thing that I said I'm going to be doing is like every year, just get away. So I, I do this like where I focus, focus, focus. But I make sure I have a good two weeks to where I can like just... If I want to be ratchet, you know, I can be ratchet, you know, but 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 in 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 how they say in moderation, <laughs> you know. Now I feel like the biggest problem or obstacle that folks in leadership position deal with is people want to paint us in a corner, like oh, we're all about activism, so so therefore we need to to maintain a certain decorum. You know, but we're human beings. You know, there's gonna be days when, when we're not feeling well or something. We had a fight with our partner, or we're just not engaging, just because we're human beings. You know, and I feel that a lot of times, people are like, and hey, you're supposed to be the executive director, and, and I saw you, and you didn't speak to me, you didn't acknowledge. I'm like, well, maybe if you spoke to me, because I, maybe I didn't see you. You know, a lot of times we're heavy in thought, so a lot of times. I'm crossing people, I pass people, I see people, or I, I should say, I see through, like, I'm seeing, I'm walking, I see you, but I don't see you. So until you say, Kiara, I'm like, oh, hey. You know, but I feel that a lot of times um, folks expect trans leaders to always be, like, on. And we're not always going to be on. You know, we deal with our own personal issues that, um, you know, that um, we have to deal with, you know, like, relationship issues or housing or whatever, health issues. You know, I deal with a lot of health issues. So um, it's important that people respect that um, I'm human, so I'm going to be prone to, to human faults. Absolutely. Is there more that you'd like to include and share? I think I pretty much covered everything. I just really would ask of people to, that they understand that 
the trans community is a community that is in need of of more, as I said earlier, support as far as investments. Um, we're in need of more spaces that are inclusive of us. Um, just getting folks to understand, like, we're human beings like they're human beings. We're not going to be perfect. Um, I, I think it's dangerous to have a narrative of, of, of trans folk as um, victims all the time, you mm -hmm. know, but, but getting folks to understand, like, we're not perfect, so yeah, we have faults, and if we're doing something messed up, hold us accountable, you know, but at the same time, um, understand, like, we are just like, we're part of humanity, so why should we not be invited to the table, you know, so make sure that when they have any event, any type of discussion, trans folks should be at that table, yeah. being part of that discussion. With about any policies, you're creating a policy about trans folks, who at the table is trans? Make sure that you have trans folks at the table. You know, and that's why, that's one of the ways we can um, eradicate some of these these messed up policies that are happening. You know? Absolutely. Yeah, and so that's about it. Sorry, I'm kind of drained now. No, 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 no problem at all. This has been such an honor. Oh, it's, it's been so an honor much. for me as well. Thank you.